what's up biker bar i'm robert and this is the biker channel apparently my computer did not want to play the intro so it is what it is so here we are at sunday 5 p.m pst like we do every every week here at the biker bar if you're not familiar a new new uh subscriber or just kind of fell upon it on on the youtubes here we are every sunday 5 p.m pst this is a long format podcast it's, we do it live but then um i usually put the audio up about the next day on podcast so you can check that out wherever you watch your podcast at i have it on google i have it on apple i have it on soundcloud and i think just recently i switched it over so that it would come up on spotify as well so if you want to go check that out do that please do me a favor and write a review for the podcast it helps it get get some notoriety notoriety i can say i swear to god i can speak english so let's go ahead and uh, i i want to say everybody thank you very much for those of you guys that throw the super chats out if you watch the show all the time you know maybe i don't always get a chance to to uh shout people out whenever they do that but it is definitely an integral part of, of the show and keeping keeping it going if you have a chance to swing by my facebook or my instagram do that it's at biker b1 um, lots of good stuff up there and if you want to know a little bit more or get some little extras out of the podcast and stuff like that i i have usually a, a patreon version of of uh extra little couple questions after the show's over so go ahead and check out patreon if you want to do that if you don't want to do that whatever just watch the video hit the thumbs up make comments tell your friends and uh that's the way that's the way it goes right so today we have a, a, a special guest his name is hans ray if you guys aren't familiar with him i'll let him introduce himself um you know what i just realized there is no have you guys been able to hear me that whole time i i just realized that i had my mic on mute so <laughs> amazing just me chatting to myself <laughs> i could hear you yeah, I think I think I had my mic muted though, as far as what was going to YouTube. So we'll go ahead and, and start that with that as it is. Um, so here we go. We got Hans Ray. Hans, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, yeah, Robert. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, stoked to talk to you today. I'm Hans Ray. I'm a professional mountain biker for the past thirty-two years or so. Um, I started out as a trials rider and. Um, I came around the US here in the early days of mountain biking and basically got to live the whole evolution of the sport and helped and had a little bit of uh, to do with um, helping to actually form and create part of the sport, um, including the whole freeride movement and then my adventure trips lately. So, um, yeah, I've been a former trials biking world champion, extreme mountain biker, adventurer. I have a charity called Wheels for Life and um, biking is my life. <laughs> so you've been around the block for a bit. I, I took a I took a look at your uh, your wiki page, and it said that you started riding in the late seventies. I was just like a baby at that point. Um, I think that's really interesting, though, because mountain biking when I started was like I started in the early nineties, and even at that point, it was it was definitely not something that um, many people did. So, how did you get into mountain biking in the late seventies? Well, it wasn't um, actually mountain biking, it was trials biking. And trials riding, unlike unlike mountain bike and BMX, trials is actually a European sport. And trials is one of the disciplines in mountain biking, if you want to say so. And in trials biking, riders have to ride up and over obstacles and um, never put their foot down. And that was 
um, a sport that started in Europe. Um, I mean, it, it started to really grow and get bigger in the late 70s and then throughout the 80s and 90s and actually way before mountain biking really took off. I mean, UCI already made trials biking a, a rainbow, like a, a world championship event back in 86. You know, mountain biking didn't become, it didn't get that status until about uh, 1990. But um, so I was a trials guy. And, and at the time, there was an American trials rider who used to come to Europe and compete with us. And one day he told me, Hans, there's a new sport in America. It's called mountain biking. And he said, guess what? Every time they have a mountain bike race, they have also a trials competition. Because as you may or may not remember, in the old days, a mountain bike race was called a stage race. And it consisted really of three disciplines. So in a mountain bike race, each rider had to do a cross country, a downhill, and a trials all on the same bike. And oh, wow. us European guys, we were way ahead on, in the trials riding. And this Kevin guy who invited me, he was the national champion at the time, said, come and show Americans what real trials riding is. And I figured I was about to go to university and I figured that would be a great way to end my career and start a real life. <laughs> I know that my career hadn't even started yet. And anyway, I came in 87 to America and uh, the rest is history. I mean, it was a really a, a dream come through, really. I mean, I never would have thought that I would stay here or that I would do it professionally or that I would still do it professionally. 33 years later, you know, so. So, so first of all, when I think about the seventies, I, I know the kind of bikes that I was riding in the early eighties and they were like, maybe it was a BMX bike. And maybe other than that, there was like road bikes and even the BMX bikes, they had like, you know, these big like banana seats on them and stuff like that. And yeah, I, so, so what kind of bike were you riding when you started doing this trials thing or first of all how the heck did you even get into this trials thing well we trials you know they do it also on motorcycles and we had a club in our town and when i was 12 my cousin and me and my friends we wanted to start riding motorcycle trials and and i guess our parents thought we were too young or it was too dangerous or too expensive so we started mimicking those guys on our regular bicycles and before you knew it, we started converting old uh, Schwinn Stingrays or rally bikes and into making more trials um, um, doable, you know, like change the gearing and the tires and took the fenders off and whatever. So and at that at that point, like, you know, trials right now is like there's all kinds of built obstacles and stuff like that. So what kind of things were you doing at that point? We like would just like we, we would ride over obstacles they would just be a little bit smaller maybe than now and yeah. and the, the the whole hopping technique in trials you know how you see guys hop on their back wheels and jump big gaps mm -hmm. you know that all evolved over the last 35 40 years you know at the beginning you would just pedal the bike and try to get through an obstacle course usually it was natural stuff uh, you would get through an obstacle course without putting your foot down so in a competition it's a lot like golf you know you have you have like 10 different sections and you have to write these sections like maybe two or three times and you get judged. And each time you put your foot down, they score a point against you. And if you, if you crash, you get five points. And at the end of a competition, the guy with the lowest score wins and you cannot practice those courses before. So it's kind of all a bit nerve wracking and it takes a lot of practice and experience. You know, balance is really the key balance and um, finesse and, 
And that's how we kind of started. And we weren't the first to do it, but we were amongst the first in Europe. And um, and yeah, it's I never switched over to motorcycles. And then when when I came to America, and in until then we did it all on twenty inch bikes. Mm -hmm. And then when we came to America, all of a sudden guys were doing it on mountain bikes, and a more older kind of uh, demographic started doing it. You know, before it was more like teenagers, and and then you would either quit or you would change over to motorcycle trials. And here in America, it was with twenty six inch bikes. So. So, so those of you, those of you that don't know who he is, or, or where, I don't know if you said exactly where you were from when, when you did the intro. I, I was, I was uh, st stressing about why my mic wasn't working, but apparently it was fine. So, um, you're you're from Germany. Where? What city in Germany are you from? I grew up in the near Freiburg in the Black Forest. Um, oh, okay. So that's my northern German. German. My dad was Swiss, and um, when I was eight, I could pick my passport, and my dad decided my son's going to be Swiss. So that's why I why I had a Swiss passport and um, but yeah I lived all my life really in Germany until I came to America and now I've been in America um, like I said 33 years and I'm also American citizen now as well so do you go back and forth to Germany a lot still or yeah I go all the time because I mean mountain biking is so big there my job requires me to travel to all these places and have a lot of sponsors that are either in Europe or they have a, a, a big market share in Europe. So um, I usually spend about um, a good four months a year in Europe. And my wife's also English and we have a second home in England. So um, but I, yeah. I, li I lived in Mannheim for a while. I was in the military when I was younger. And I think they're skiing up around Freiburg, right? Yeah, they're skiing in the Black yeah. Forest. It's awesome. That's, it's a really that's beautiful countryside. That's the very first place I ever went downhill skiing was up there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure my friends tried to kill me, but it was a, it was it was a good time. Nice. So um, <clears throat> you you what I wanted to ask you, though, about the bikes that you were riding back then is I know like how mountain biking kind of came about. There's a bunch of guys riding a trail called Repack. And the reason that they called it that was because they had to repack their brakes all the time whenever they would run this trail, right? And trials is a, a sport that is definitely something that brakes are, are extremely important. What was it like with the brakes that you were running back then? Well, it was different, but the, the brakes were important, but they weren't as important as um, they are now when you hop on your back wheel and everything is on that one finger on your back brake and you land with all this force and it has to work 100%. Back then the brakes had to be good too and we had to, that was always an art to get your brakes to work, especially when you ride in water. You know, we would have a lot of water sections where you cross rivers and stuff and, and brakes traditionally, especially rim brakes don't work as good. So then we started running drum brakes on our bikes and we had like, we would start like grinding the rims to make, um, to make the surface more more rough so in in the wet it would um, actually still work and then there was times we would put tar on the rim that makes it really tacky and it's almost <laughs> like they squeaked like like hell but they would like they would lock up with one finger once we started the hopping techniques but you know that hopping technique that didn't develop overnight i mean Back in the days when somebody could swing their back wheel 90 degrees around, you know, that was kind of a big deal. You know, you go like, wow, did you see that? And, you know, nowadays, you know, then 
hopping on the back wheel or hopping a gap on the back wheel or side hopping up stuff. Those are all things that that evolved over 15, 20 years, you know, to the level where it's now and it's still evolving, you know, new techniques, new bikes, you know, um, come about. So you said that you you came over to the States in 87. At that point, were you already um, kind of pretty well established in the bike community or was was that like kind of the beginning of when things really started falling into place for you? Well, I was I was established in the bicycle trials community, you know, which like I, like I said before, it was a European sport and we always had European championships and world championships and national championships. And I was I was oh, I was always like a, a runner up um, in the world championships. I was like several times German and Swiss champion. I I was like a constant top 10 guy for, you know, like six, seven years. And then, like I said, when I when I turned 18, I thought it's time to get real with life and hang it up. And and I started to enroll in university. I did one semester there and then I took this invitation to come to America and um, they're still waiting for me at the university today. <laughs> so you're, 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 what, what school was it that you were trying to go to? I was a university for publishing in Stuttgart in Germany, and I wanted to be publishing, marketing. Um, and I did, like I said, I, I didn't get that far, but I always had it in my blood. And I think that helped me to build my own career because, you know, like it's one thing the stuff you do on the bike but the stuff you do off the bike um especially if you want to make a living in a in a sport that wasn't really a sport where anybody made a living i mean in the early days of mountain biking yes we had some pro riders but that was all based on racing and yes i did my share of racing i competed quite a bit in trials and i started doing downhills and slaloms but if once you stopped racing, there was no career for anybody. You could maybe become the team manager or or do something else in the industry. And I was kind of the first guy to take my skills outside of racing. When I, you know, in the early 90s, I started doing these videos. And basically what YouTube was for Danny McCaskill was VHS for me. We started doing these action trials video and they went around the world like crazy. But in the old traditional way, then they didn't go viral because there was no internet. Right. People would literally buy the VHS. I mean, they're hanging right there on the wall. One of the um, guys, one of the I, guys in the chat is a uh, is a pretty well known YouTuber, and he was saying that uh, his very first mountain bike VHS that he bought was was one of yours. So definitely, yeah. uh, definitely laid your impact along the way. How well, did you? There was, there was so, literally a generation of, of sorry, there was a generation of people who who there was nothing else out there. See, the, the great thing was I had the stage for myself, and people would literally wear those videotapes out, and they would also end up playing on TV. And and to have biking on TV was something really rare too. I mean, you have to keep in mind this was before X Games, before even ESPN two channel was out, before before um, internet, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. When, whenever something was on TV, people were starving and they couldn't wait to see it. So how was it that you you got from, you know, being a racer to making it to, you know, making that transition to starting to build videos and stuff? You were just like, you, you realized that you needed to kind of make a change or or it just kind of happened naturally or? I thought, I thought like, I could show my skills more like in real life environments. So 
And competitions is one thing you hop over logs and rocks and people cannot necessarily relate to, but you jump up your mountain bike to the top, to the roof of a car. That's like something, you know, like four and a half, five feet. People can relate to that stuff and right, right up a waterfall or right in the snow and whatever we did in those early days. And, and I was, I was inspired by the extreme skiers back then. Extreme skiing was just about to get big. Those guys jumping off cliffs like Glenn Blake and, John Smith, uh, uh, Glenn Blake, and 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 Scott Smith, and I was like, I don't want to be a mountain bike racer anymore. I want to become an extreme mountain biker, and <laughs> I started taking my bike into these out, you know, riding down cliffs and riding, doing wall rides and doing urban stuff, and 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 riding the steepest trails I could find. That was literally a time, and I was cocky enough to to actually say that there. Anything anybody does in the world on a bike, uh, I would do it too. And <laughs> times have changed since then. But it was really, I was kind of, and I started, I coined the word extreme biking. And that's what free riding was called five years before the word free ride was actually introduced into our sport. And, and then free ride took really off with the introduction of full suspension bikes and then the Canadian influence. But so, so when you first started, you were you were doing trials videos. So how would that go? Like you you had like a team of, of like videographers that would go with you and you had like complete creative control or they would just be like, hey, go do some tricks and we'll follow you around. Or how did that go? Yeah, it was very amateurish, but in a way, in a way, like what it came down to nowadays where everybody does their own little videos. But it was basically a, a one or two men would film you. And with little VHS camera cam cam recorders that are like ten times shittier than your iPhone is nowadays. <laughs> and I mean, really, the late the late and great um, um, president and one of the founders of GT Bicycles, Richard Long, he he came to me one day and said about ninety one and said, Hans, it's so difficult to explain to people the skills you have, what you can do on your bike. Why don't we do one of those videos? And GT, as you probably know, they were always really big in BMX. Yeah, that was one of the BMX videos. When I was a kid, there was a few bikes that were like the ones that you wanted to have. It was like GT, it was Haro, and it was Mongoose back in, in, right. in the 80s, you know? Yeah. So it definitely can relate with what you're saying. Yeah. So that's that's how we got started. It would be one guy following me around, filming some stuff. The first one was in Laguna. We, we did some urban stuff, rode on trees. We... We, but the cool, the, the thing was, it wasn't just showing off the skills outside of competitions, and it was not just only on a trials bike. It was also on a regular mountain bike, so people could relate to it. But we also brought in a bit of lifestyle and fun, and we we brought that fun factor in. Until then, mountain biking was all about racing. It was all about t being timed and training and being fast, and 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 like those videos kind of opened to door the door to really what is now like really what happened on YouTube, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know when I started mountain biking, I, I, I made a joke about it whenever I think it was the very first video that I ever did on my YouTube channel. And I was talking about when I first started mountain biking and it was really at that point, it was just, it was a road bike, you know, on the dirt. And basically there was so much of that road bike kind of culture even built into it at that point where it was like everybody wore spandex and like you, you had a, a helmet with a, a spandex cover over it. And, and just like, it, it was, it, it was a fully rigid bike. And, and I, I remember seeing the first 
full suspension bike that I saw was in the early 90s. And it was just like, I mean, the top of the line giant bike at that time was a thousand bucks. That's definitely a, a very different um, different yeah. place I than, mean, than yeah, where we are today. Yeah. It's it's crazy. The bikes. Sometimes I, I I still cannot believe how we did it. Like look at that picture in the background. This is this wall ride was shot in ninety one or ninety two on a completely rigid bike with flat handlebars, wearing lycra outfit, but like <laughs> six, six seven feet up that wall, and people would literally think in those days like that was photoshopped. We had never seen anything like it, and people would go like. Yeah, but you know, how did you do that? Uh, you know, like, and it's oh, like, I'm oh, sure dude. people even seen that today on a fully rigid bike would still question whether or not that was photoshopped. Skinny tires, cantilever brakes. I mean, and then we wrote down trails here in Laguna Beach. We known for having some of the very steep trails, legendary trails, trails, trails that are still today on to with today's skills and today today's bikes are challenging. Where top pros walk sections. We yeah. rode those trails 35 years ago already with these crappy bikes, you know? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I was lucky to be always kind of at the source of this, of this movement, you know, like, because the, the local bike club we have here, the Laguna rats are kind of the original free riders, really. They, 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 after the clunker guys, what you were mentioning, who started the whole thing, mountain biking in the late 80s turned all into racing. It was all about racing until I started doing these videos and showed people, hey, you know what? Millions of bikes are sold. Norba only has 30,000 licenses of racers. You know, what are all the other people doing with their bikes? And, you know, people are not, it's not all about racing. And we started opening these doors with adventures and with other stuff. And, and anyway, so that's that's how we kind of spread the word and got the fun factor out and got people a bit more enrolled. So you, you started doing these trials videos and then somehow you said you, you, you leaned into basically inventing or being a one of the forefathers of free ride. How, how did that come about? That was just like your balls were too big and you were like, I need to do something harder. <laughs> No, yeah, it was that, you know, you wanted to push the limits <laughs> and see what you can do. But it was like, we didn't know really we were inventing something. We just did what felt like right, what we wanted to do. And yes, I always looked at it a little bit from a business point of view, you know, like, like I said before, it was very unconventional for the bike industry to sponsor a guy who's not racing anymore. But then all of a sudden they could see that man, what whatever that guy does, and not just the videos, but he does trial shows in like 50 different bike shops throughout the year, and he reaches people, and these people end up buying the bikes. I mean, the Saska was the bike that I grew up with, and there was like to this day, you know, people who grew up in the early 90s, there's so many people who who wanted to have a Saska because it was the cool bike to have. And and you know, like so yeah, it 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 it's something that happened in a way but in a in another way we we had to kind of create it and pave the road and and these companies like first they were like we don't have budget for this you know all our budget goes to the cross-country racers and a little bit to the downhillers and then but then they started to see the results and but that that was that took like five ten years you know so, so. so with free ride then you were based can, can you tell me what free ride is to you uh to me it's just like non-competitive riding really you know 
Um, mm -hmm. So extreme biking, you know, technical riding, you know, so there's a lot of different subcultures for free ride, as we all know. Mm -hmm. But um, the true free ride for me is to ride steep terrain, the big mountain stuff, really, you know, and I'm not the biggest fan of what the slope style has turned into these days. It's too chippy and too, too BMX heavy. And actually you have to be a gymnast. You know, it doesn't relate to the mountain bike as much, as much as it was cool to watch it grow the slope style scene, mm -hmm. but where it gotten to, to today, it's like you watch one competition and you've seen them all. And yeah, just, just some guys just hitting it, some big ass shit, right? Well, they're doing incredible tricks that are uncomprehensible, you know, and, <laughs> and you've never dreamt of that it's possible. But at the same time, the bikes they ride are often not real mountain bikes and the whole culture they're breeding. It's like, I, I, I like more like stuff like Rampage or where real mountain biking, big bikes. Um, more know, natural stuff. Films, so... But that's the cool thing about mountain biking. You know, there's so many subcultures. Everybody can interpret it and do it in their own way. And and that's what keeps it fresh and interesting for all of us, I think. It's definitely um, been something that has, has grown all these little subcultures that, that um, you know, back then probably not many people were expecting that to happen. You know, it's uh, when I first started riding, like I said, in the 90s, I... I later had taken a break for a little while and I, me I remember going back into a shop in, in the early 2000s and I was like, oh, I want to buy a mountain bike. And the guy's like, well, you want a cross country bike? You want a downhill bike? You want a trail bike? You want to, and I just remember looking at the guy and I, and, I, and like he finished saying like 10 different things. And I looked at him, I was like, dude, I want a mountain bike. Yeah. you know like it, it, it didn't cross my mind that like the, the that's how it was like then people the only question they would ask does it have shimano and then right? like, does, it have, does it have suspension but it was like that's the only thing that mattered you know but yeah if it has shimano I'll, I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> so um <clears throat> How was it, you know, for you coming coming through the '90s and and watching all these different like technologies and stuff like that come about? Was there any one technology that that you thought was really gonna gonna take off that that just kind of fell flat? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember a particular example. I mean, we've seen a lot of stuff come and go. And a lot of stuff we saw evolve from the beginning. Like I was there with RockShox when they first started. I was one of the first guys who would test with them or ride with them and be sponsored by them. And, you know, when, when suspension forks and people had no idea what to expect, really. And back then we had 100 millimeter of, or even less, like 60s and 80s. And people were worried. They were like, oh, I don't need that. You know, just like they said, I don't, I don't need a dropper post, you know, <laughs> like they said, I don't need bigger tires. And, right. and, and then like, they, you know, it took a while for it, of course, to, to fine tune all that stuff. There was a lot of trial and error and a lot of this, these products sucked or didn't make it or had to be reinvented or, reshaped you know i mean suspension came a long way hydraulic brakes came a long way carbon came a long way you know and um so yeah you you've seen a lot of stuff come come and go really you know there was some stupid ideas trust me yeah right <laughs> i read an article this morning that was about um i'm sure you remember these it was like a height right thing that they used to have it was like a spring that hooked up to your quick release and then yeah. to your seat tube and you could like while you were riding you could reach under there open up your quick release drop your seat down and close it and it was like 
it that was that was a that was a dropper way ahead of its time and and then basically because it things. was we yeah i remember i had him i had one too <laughs> we, we, we used those things and it was an art to keep your take your hand off the handlebar you know and do yeah. it and, and keep it straight and then like and then came the power post which was this parallelogram post that would like fold forward or backward you know like you could with oh, a lever. Yeah, yeah. it had a remote and it would it would the whole seat post would would it wouldn't go down it would like clap forward and those things were were expensive for the time and they were like complicated but they worked you know and and because especially if you were into writing steep stuff where you had to put your seat down so i was one of the first guys who started go getting into these whole uh, adjustable seat posts the gravity droppers back in the days when when they first came out when everybody was laughing or wasn't get it or it was like oh that's a it's like 400 grams heavier you know i don't want that and and go on a trail out you know nowadays you know the nine out of ten people say they wouldn't they couldn't write anymore without the proper post you know i was definitely one of those guys that talked all the shit about them i was like man i've been riding since the 90s i'm a fucking dropper dude i can I, I can be just fine and and uh whenever i finally tried one i i will say that i wasn't a convert like immediately but after because it took a little bit of time to get used to not having that extra like like touch point on your bike you know because you, when when you first start using a dropper, you're, you're kind of used to maybe like kind of pinching your seat a little bit in between your thighs. So whenever it's gone, then it, it like you kind of feel like, oh man, I'm, this doesn't feel right. But um, after you you get used to it, and you're like, man, I totally agree. Like, th there's no way you don't you want to do that. I always joke, I want to push a button now, and I just want the seat to disappear. I think yeah. it's the best aftermarket invention that mountain biking had in all these years. The best, you know, I mean proper posts uh you, you know can can live without them yeah i mean i i bought a hardtail recently it's the first time i've been riding a hardtail in a long time and when i got on i bought the the bottom of the line one on purpose because i wanted to like you know just kind of see what 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 came that way you know and the very first thing was like i can deal with shitty wheels shitty hubs shitty brakes shitty componentry like there is no way that I'm doing another ride without putting a dropper on this bike, you know? And so, and then from there, obviously, you know, think things have been, been changed out, but that, that, that dropper is definitely, um, it, it's a game changer because it gives you the ability to use your, your natural born suspension, you know, your arms and your legs. So <clears throat> as you started doing the, the, the free riding stuff and you said that you like to do really natural things and really steep things were you staying in california or did you start traveling around the globe at that point i was already traveling at the time because i always you know i, I did these trial shows and we would do them to all different occasions i mean initially one of the reasons i decided to stay in america was swatch offered me a contract and swatch always and promoted extreme sports way way before anybody else was interested i mean swatch really paved the way for red bull you know red bull came 10 years later and then they took things to a way other level but swatch was what red bull you know swatch in the in the mid 80s to the to the late 90s you know like swatch dominated all the extreme sports and if i remember correctly that was like it was a watch right but it was yeah. just kind of like uh they always had like real trendy kind of faces and, and yeah plastic their, watch it was a yeah, plastic yeah. watch but this swatch was crazy and they, yeah, they I totally forgot about that brand like, until you said that because i remember they had like really fun bands and stuff like that it, it was definitely something that was a little different 
than um than the timex that you were able to get you know yeah and i met them right when i first came to the to the states and um we did this ad and they started sponsoring me and they said we want you to go on tour with with, with some skateboarders and i went touring uh, with Rodney Mullen and guys like Rob Roscop, we I I used to do demos with him, and he was a pro skateboarder, and and we would go to these shopping malls across the country and do shows, and 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 then like sometimes it would be at bigger at big rock concerts or at the Hard Rock Cafe or or <laughs> at, at at all kinds of occasions, you know. And GT would send me to shows too, and I would visit GT distributors, and. You know, that's why my career is so global. I got to go to all these countries early on. And and the nice thing being a trials guy is I could show something. I mean, bring a cross-country rider to a TV show in Australia. What can he do there? You know, instead of, you know, he can show some photos. But I could actually in the studio jump over the host and jump up the stairs and and ride, you know, and and, and was something people could see. And that, that got me a lot of publicity and it got the word out and it was a fun thing and that's what we kind of did a lot in those days so um but what, yeah. was it, what was it like being a young guy just kind of traveling around riding bikes for you like like obviously when you were younger you thought hey i need to go to university and, and make a living that way and next thing you know you're you're seeing the world I mean, at that point, you're you're what maybe late 20s early 30s or something like that you're traveling all over the place and what was well, how did how did that feel from day one it was a really hard decision because you were like you know you had a, this this pressure from the parents and from everybody like so what are you going to do in one or two years when this is all over and it's it might be too late to go to school then and and you know like and there was a lot of this and, and at the beginning it wasn't like that money was just like raining down on you yes i was sponsored i could make a living and all that and maybe save a little bit money but it wasn't like that you could set yourself up in any way, not even near. And and right. we had no idea that mountain biking would actually boom and explode like it would. And there would be some serious money in it eventually. But you had to always, you had to work for it. And you, and literally since I was 16 years old, I would say, I'm going to do this one or two more years and then I'm going <laughs> to get a real job. Right. So, so yeah, that's kind of how it all kind of started. You know, it's a slow evolution. So you've been with uh, GT for a really long time. What year did you start start working with them? Right then and there in '87. When I came over, they they were one of the first sponsors, just like Swatch. How did that come about? So like you were just winning some races, and they approached you, or? Well, a little bit. I, I it was more like I told you earlier that that guy who invited me to come to America was the U.S. National Trials Champ, and his name was Kevin Norton. And what was most important to him was to make trials big in America. And that's why he kind of invited me to, even though I kind of took the spotlight from him in some ways, he did not hold back to introduce me to everybody, to the whole bike industry, to sponsors, to media, to um, to whatever it would be, you know, like just to make the sport bigger. And, and, and at the time he was sponsored by Haro and Haro made a trial spike and he's, he figured it would be great if we get GT to make a trial spike too. And a friend of, of his, uh, Penny Westman, she started, uh, she worked at GT and she convinced the owner of GT, Richard Long, to, to build a trial spike or to sponsor a trials rider. And at that time was, was when GT seriously started making mountain bikes for the first time. They, they, they did a mountain bike in 85, then they stopped. And in 87, they hired a guy named Bill During 
uh, to develop a, an adult bike line for them. And at the same time, we started Team GT, and it was Rishi Graywall, who was a top cross-country racer, and myself, who basically started that. And GT started building a trials bike. And So uh, what, did it, what did a trials bike consist of then? Because, I mean, now it's like the geometry uh, of that bike looks nothing like a BMX. I, I, I had a, the chance to ride with a, a, a trials rider up in Tahoe last year, and he had his bike there with him. And I was like, this thing just looks nuts compared. I mean, I think he had one, didn't he? I don't think it had even had a seat on it. Yeah, well, back then we still had seats, even though we didn't use them. We had them, so that's why they don't have them anymore, because why have a seat if you don't use it anyway? And But you have a little gear with a lot of ground clearance, a skid blade. You have bigger tires. You needed good brakes. And we had triple ground forks, Richard crippled, crippled ground, ground forks, which was completely overkill, <laughs> kind of imitating the motorcycle trials, you know, a motorcycle fork. And mm -hmm. at the time, it was 20-inch bikes. And yeah. then, you know, like uh, shortly after that, I started also doing trials on a regular mountain bike on a stock. So, so that 20 inch bike, though, I mean, essentially for people that are just listening, trying to, or that don't know what it looked like, I mean, it essentially looked like a BMX, right? Yeah. So, was yeah, the geometry starting to get longer at that point? Like, was the wheelbase getting longer when they were designing it? Or, like, what yeah. was it when they, like, quote unquote, started to design a trials bike? What made that? trials bike different than what the bmx were at the time well, there, there was a lot of different angles and geometry already but like like you said to a layman it would look like a bmx because it had 20 inch wheels mm -hmm. but at the same time it had like this different fork and it had this really small gear with a skid plate and that was the that was the main but the angles were already different we had longer longer top tubes and slacker forks and we had like shorter chain stays in the back so um th there was differences but yeah you can you That's can it, like, like, i remember i had one of those like a plastic one that went on my mountain bike back then like it would mount on the bottom yeah. of the down tube and yeah. kind of like just rest like zip tied almost into the the bottom bracket and that thing was like golden even for mountain biking back then because i like where i i was riding at that point was back in pennsylvania and there's like down trees all over the place and you know just a lot of that kind of stuff so you would just kind of like just do a wheelie into something just let it slam into that and it'd slide over it and till the back tire caught and then you just keep going so it was weird to me whenever I got back into riding and I was like, that thing's gone. And now they just put some kind of ring on your, 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 uh, your front chain ring to, to dig through stuff. I, I just remember thinking to myself, man, it seems like the, the smarter piece of technology didn't win there. Well, they also changed the rules in trials competitions. In the old days, you could use your skid blade to get over stuff. And then later they started penalizing you. If you touch your skid blade, you got a point scored against you. Oh, That's right. why the modern bikes don't even have a skid blade anymore because you're not supposed to 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 use that, you know. So but yeah, bikes came a long way. Then we had those rock rings that protected your chain ring. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, eventually we just learned to hop higher so we don't need those things to protect the bike. <laughs> So um, what was the, what, I mean, like I said earlier, you've been with GT for a really long time. And what is, what is it that makes that, uh, that relationship stand the test of time like it has? I mean, at this point, you've been riding with them for what, what, 30, 40 years, something like that? Yeah, I've been there for 33 years or so, which is probably a record in the whole 
in the whole action sports and outdoor and cycling industry, I don't think there's been one guy that's been with a major sponsor for that long. I mean, not even Tony Hawk had had a major sponsor that long. Right. And, so, and, so what's the secret in the sauce there, man? How well, you know, like for me, it's like, why, why, why fix it if it ain't broken? You know, I was always happy with the company. It was a very progressive company, great bike bikes. They really supported racing and or whatever. You know, they were supporting athletes and listening to athletes. And I'm just like, I don't know. Maybe that's an old school thing, but you know, I know racers. That it was kind of a. It almost was expected that you jump teams from you know like every few years, and I don't know why. It, I was like, you know what? As long as I'm happy with what they pay me and what what the relationship is, why why change it? You know, and and it kind of worked. And we went to sick and sin, you know, together over the years. And a lot of things have changed at GT, but it's still a company that has their heart at the right place, and they they're still into racing and and riding and having fun and making great new products and i'm happy to be part of it where is their headquarters at i don't know where they're at well we originally we were a california company you know typical california brand from socal but um and now they they based in um on the east coast you know because we are part of the csg group and that's part of the cannondale and mongoose and that whole stuff so oh, yeah. we in Connecticut, in Bessel, Connecticut. Huh. What um, what, what's one of the things that that? So you said earlier that you thought the the dropper was really something that's like completely changed the game. Is there anything else to you that that's really kind of blown you away as far as like the technology of the bikes over the years? Well, uh, let me say this. Uh, I think bikes, uh, the technology has ruled our industry and sport for the last twenty years. Oh, the first 20 years, put it this way. But I think the next 20 years are going to be more about um, how we ride the bikes and where. And that's what where this whole trail movement comes in with trail building and bike parks and what's what's been happening already for the last 15 years. And But it's more and more. And I mean, look at the amount of great trails that pop up everywhere in the world and bike parks and pump tracks and and which brings more people to the sport, you know, for better or worse. But um, it's just like there's a fun side of things, you know, and and riding a really, you know, like it can be horrifying to do do your first mountain bike ride and ride a gnarly steep trail or have to climb a, a, a thousand or two thousand feet if you're not used to it. Yeah. But with these modern bike parks, it opens up doors to people and really gives the sport a possibility to grow. I went to a, 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 there's a downhill park that's opened up in, in um, Austin, Texas, and it only has like 350 feet elevation loss and they put in a lift and, but I'll tell you what, even in 300 and coming from California, I mean, we're used to like trails that have a lot of loss on them, you know? <laughs> so like I, when I went there, I was thinking to myself initially, I was like, I don't know how much fun this is going to be. You know, I'm, I'm used to like descending for a few miles, you know? And, uh, it, it was definitely, it was, it was very well built. And the thing that really blew me away, which was what kind of touches base on what you had just said a minute ago, there was all kinds of people there, man. There, there was, there, there was a guy there. I wouldn't, I, I'm probably like undershooting by saying he was like 65, maybe even 70 years old. And he, he had a, a, a bike that definitely did not look like it was a, a, a legit mountain bike, but 
he was just, I mean, I'm assuming he was just going down the green runs or something like that, but he was up there having a blast, man. And, and it's one of those things that you're, you're just like, that's really cool. You know, that, that's really good to see a sport that's, that's pulling all of the, all of the different age groups together and um, having that kind of momentum to, to yeah. And, and more than ever. And by the way, nineties to new seventies. So <laughs> we're all going to be riding till we probably longer than we walk. But, but you know what? I have an, a good example along those lines and there, there's a little bike park here in Southern California in Arrowhead. It's not far from big bear and it's called uh, sky park, uh, Santa's village. Uh-huh. And they have like a couple hundred feet of elevation. They don't have a lift to the top. You have to pedal up, but they build really a mellow uphill trail ride. It takes like eight minutes to pedal up to the top. Mm -hmm. They charge you $45 to go and ride there. And you go like, what? But you know what? It's worth every single penny because the trails are so well built and it really comes all down to having good trails and yeah. building trails is an art. And there was a lot of, I mean, you can say there's nothing like a bad trail, true, but there's a lot of trails that could be a lot better. And the key is, especially for a park like this, you have to build the trails predictable. Right. And and then people can kind of let it go and don't have to have the death grip and and all that. And this, this place has an incredible infrastructure, this, this village below with a bike shop and gourmet food, like oh, really good food and yeah, yeah. micro beers and... And it's a, it's you can take the whole, there's a whole adventure park attached that you can use and you can do zip lines and rock climbing and it's all part of the ticket. So that's part of the reason why it's a bit more expensive. But I tell you, it's just like you say about it, this place in Austin. You don't need elevation, you don't need lifts, you just need really good trails. And people start to learn that now and they start to understand that it's actually an art. It's not just a matter of okay, here's a bunch of shovels, build some turns. No, you kind of, just like you hire a guy, an architect who knows how to build your house, you know, you're not just by hire some guy from the street, you know, to build your house. And it's the same with trail works. And there's a lot of talented guys out there, but there's a big difference between a good trail and a trail that could be a lot better. So, yeah. And just being able to build a trail too, that is, is sustainable nowadays too. That's like, you know, whenever I, I was a young kid, like we would go out and kind of hack some stuff into the woods and, and anything that we built was not sustainable by any means, you know, and, and the way that they do it now where they design that trail for the, the water to run off correctly or the erosion, not to like just damage it every, every year. It's amazing. It, it really is yeah, amazing. Build the transitions right and make it safe and make it, you know, like you can really let it go. Like I said earlier, the predictability is the most important thing. If a trail is predictable and that doesn't make it a boring or a lame trail and it doesn't make it an easy line because I tell you a top pro just goes twice as fast on an easy trail and you still yeah. have the same fun, you know, as long as you build it right and you, you know, and it gets you this roller coaster effect, you know, you, you know, you got the ticket there. Yeah. I said to a guy earlier today, he was, uh, walking up a section of trail and, uh, cause he was on, he was on a downhill bike and he was, he was like, oh man, this is as far as I can get on the downhill bike. And I was like, dude, it doesn't matter how you get to the top, man, just as long as you're having fun, you know? And that's, that's one of those things where I think that sometimes people try to, they get a little bit too much in their head about 
how what level they should be riding or whether or not you know they're doing this or doing that and it, they kind of forget that it it's really just about how big your grin is when you're done right no and that's and that's what these purpose-built trails do and that's what you know if you hate them or not that's what e-bikes do too you know they bring the fun factor back into the equation big time so yeah i'm glad you brought that up i was going to ask you about that so how do you feel about them i mean obviously you just summed it up really quickly but i mean when in in maybe a a, a bit of a longer description what, what's your what's your take on the e-bike situation i think e-bikes are are awesome they're fun you know but i i it an e-bike is not going to replace the regular bike for me you know i'm you know i look at it like you can do nordic skiing and you can do alpine skiing you know so why why can't you e-bike and also ride a regular bike you know it's like it's it's not a competition and yes for a guy you know like mountain biking has a lot of different reasons why one wants to do it and if a guy you know not everybody is into endurance and training and 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 going hard uphill they want to just have fun especially if it's somebody who maybe used to ride a lot and now they have family and work and obligations and and if you only ride once a week or every two weeks and you have to climb like three thousand feet it's there's not that much fun in it you know yeah. and as much as much as it good it feels good afterwards after you climb the three thousand feet it doesn't really feel that good while you climb it, you know, no matter how, how strong you are. And that's the thing with the e-bike. It's, it's a bit like this little kid I was in Germany when I was 14 years old and would ride trials all afternoon after school. And then I would go in for dinner. And after dinner, there was still a half an hour of daylight and I couldn't wait to go out and practice my wheelies again. And it's a little bit like this on an e-bike. They're just fun, you know, and, and they open up new challenges and new possibilities. And you can ride together with other guys. And and at the same time, I sometimes don't touch my e-bike for two weeks and ride my regular bike because that's just that has its own peaks, too. And, and it's yeah, <clears throat> I feel like it's like this, man. If you open up your toolbox, you got a bunch of tools in there. You don't just have a hammer. You know what I mean? You don't just have like, so it's like, it's just another tool, another way to do what you want to do. And like you said earlier, like there's like cross country skiing or there's downhill skiing or it's the same thing with bikes. Yeah. And, and it's not cheating. It's only cheating if you race one and against somebody who doesn't have one, right. you know, it's, it's it has nothing to do with cheating. I mean, honestly, on this subject, I, I feel like e-bike racing misses the point. I'm not a big fan of e-bike racing. I think that's kind of nonsense. But um, to ride an e-bike, that's not cheating. First of all, you can still get a workout, and most people do. Not everybody rides in the boost mode. Um, and second of all, um, you know, you spin the bike. You spin like six times more than on a regular bike ride. It's like a spinning class. You know, like yeah. I did a ride two days ago in in the Santa uh, San Gabriel Mountains, and and we were all like worked afterwards you know and it was super technical trail and it's like and it, but it was fun you know and we were like the whole time up we were like all everybody in the group was like gosh i'm glad we didn't bring the regular bikes today <laughs> i haven't ridden a um a, an e-bike like a, a proper like down like all mountain kind of e-bike yet and my my thought is that you know it's pretty heavy so it, it you're probably still putting some work in on the technical stuff to kind of adjust for that extra weight, right? Well, a little bit. I mean, so the, 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 the pedal assist motor you have, and by the way, I'm only a fan of 
e-bikes you know the class one category one e-bikes you know i'm not into these high powered throttle assist uh, yeah i don't I'm, that, that, that's that to me doesn't thing. really that that's like you know? a electric motorcycle yeah right? i'm just into those pedal you know pedal assist ones and they are you know they they work awesome you know and they're fun and you still have to earn it and you can make it as challenging as you want is there anything that you're seeing some of these young guys, like you mentioned Danny Max skill earlier that, that you're seeing them do trials wise that you're just like, wow, I would have never thought it was going to get to that. Yeah, for sure. These guys have taken it to a level that is, that is beyond compensation. I mean, like you could have, we could have not dreamt of that. No, but there was a lot of things in the evolution of our sport that is that, that has gone that way, you know, uh -huh. We could have never imagined, you know, these full suspension bikes, or we could have never imagined to buy, that the mountain bike might cost $12,000. <laughs> or we could have never imagined that there would be bike parks all over the world, you know? And, and yeah, Danny, Danny is a, one of these examples. He grew up watching my videos and he took it to the next level and he did it right. You know, I mean, big time and what he can do. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm stoked to watch it and to experience and be friends with him and get to, you know, and I can still maybe inspire him nowadays on other levels. You know, it might not be on my, on the bike exactly, but the fact that a guy with 54, three years old can still have a career gives guys like um, Danny an inspiration to, Hey, this doesn't have to be over in two or three years for him. You know, he can maybe do it too into his fifties, you know, if he plays it right, you know, and, or they can they they get inspired by adventure stuff you do or charitable work you do and and but yeah there's there was always a connection between us and it's it's nice to be friends and it's nice to see how where these guys have taken the sport you know it's really incredible to 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 have to lift the experience or the evolution of our sport I think when I was reading your your the the wiki page on you they had said something about like you had been to about 70 different countries yeah, at least. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably a bit outdated, but yeah. <laughs> that was back in the day. What, what, uh, what, what are some of your, your favorite places to ride in, 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 in this, uh, on the planet here? Well, I, I, I've been, like you said, all over the place and, and for a long time I went to these really remote places. I was often one of the first guys who would go to a certain country or mountain range and ride there and, try to do something and lately I discovered these urban adventures which I'm really hooked on and I did this Trans Angeles trip a five-day traverse of Los Angeles with all the contrasts of this urban um, the urban chaos in the cities but then these incredible um, surrounding uh, landscapes you know that that some of these cities offer like Los Angeles or I did one in Naples and I'm about to released a clip on youtube hopefully next week and and but writing wise i always like the andes and i i spend a lot of time in this mountain resort in italy it's called livigno and it's in northern italy and it's kind of the the whistler of europe in so many ways because they have such an incredible infrastructure and uh, for any kind of biking from from hardcore downhill to really cool flow trails and flow country trails to they have a lot of cross country and trans alp stuff they have a huge all these pro road teams go there to practice because it's at altitude and and it's in this perfect alpine setting 
So um, Livigno, I spend a lot of time every summer and that's definitely on top of my list. It seems like Europe in general has a, a little bit of a better, like they're a little more welcoming of, of mountain biking than the US is. Why do you think that is? I think it's, it has to do with the, the tourism in these places. They see the potential. I mean, they've seen it with skiing and they, they, know, in, they know biking is a huge demographic and bikers have money they they go tra they love to travel they like to stay in nice places they like to eat nice food and they cater to them i mean i look at places like laguna beach here which is quite famous for biking and a lot of people come here from all over the world and our city or tourism board doesn't have a clue and doesn't care and in europe that's completely different you know a lot of these these destinations they encourage the tourism and they they build trails and they build networks and they they have government funding to build stuff and and there's just like a corporation here you often have a a private person who either you know maybe owns a ski resort and they put their own money into everything even though they they if they're successful they bring a lot of business and and money towards their region but mm -hmm. uh, they do it like single-handedly while over there it's a bit more of a team effort and um and they they have a lot of experience from skiing, you know, and they just like copy that, you know, while yeah. American ski resorts, they, uh, most of them weren't interested in biking until, until Whistler set the example. And then they all started to kind of, you know, try to join the party. I think Whistler is similar to Europe in the size of their ski resort as well. I know when I lived over there, like when I would go down to Austria to ski, you could actually ski and with the lift system, like in between three different cities. Or yeah. more, you yeah. know. I remember meeting a guy there on the on the slopes one day, and he was like, "Dude, you could you could ride a different trail for a week. Every 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 run you do a different run for a week, and still not hit everything. Yeah, yeah. it's just insane, you know. So I can imagine that they're like, "Hey, come summertime, why don't we just keep this going and and figure out how to do with bikes? European Europeans seem to also be like pretty much." Uh, like completely okay with the e-bike scene as well there there doesn't seem to be a uh, um a stigma with it over there yeah it is and and i mean europeans are open to bikes in every aspect you know like and pe they people grow up on bikes they use them for transportation into uh, late you know into their late years and e-bikes are environmental friendly you know much more than a car and people often sell their car and buy an e-bike you know and then yes, some some use it for fitness too, but um, they are open for it, and they also not mix up with this. In America, I think e-bikes got a bad taste because at the beginning there was these high-powered e-bikes with a with a throttle, and they would go like eighty miles per hour or whatever, and that's that is a motorcycle, you know. Right. But right. a pedal assist class one e-bike, that's really a bicycle. You ride it like a bicycle, you dress like a bike rider, you ride bicycle trails. You don't want to ride motorcycle trails on those things. You want to ride bicycle trails. Right. And you it's a bike thing, you know. And, and yes, you have a little assist, but so does the guy with his titanium stem or with his with his carbon wheels. He has assists too, you know, and mm -hmm. and I think it's it's all good, you know. So, um, being, being a German, are, are you a beer guy? Oh yeah. But what's, what's your favorite kind of beers? Well, I like them all. Um, like this one here. What are, what are you drinking right now? This is just a IPO, like nothing. Luponic distortion IPA series. 
There you go. Yeah, I got a, a Lagunitas IPA that I'm doing here. I like dark beer stouts and ports and stuff like that a lot. And I'll tell you what, I liked the uh, the stout like a like a Guinness when I was in Europe better because it had a little higher alcohol in it, and I and I think it just changes the taste of it a lot a lot over there. But over here now with all these microbreweries, you're starting to see stuff come up that that has that real full kind of flavor to it. Yeah, they, and that even goes into Europe now. They start having these microbreweries, American style in Europe, which is kind of interesting, you know? Yeah, so, when I lived over there, it was, what was I? I was there in the, the like, 95 to 98, something like that. And it, basically, you were either drinking a Pilsner, a Weizen, or a Hef, like a Hef Weizen or a Crystal Weizen. Yeah, exactly. really, you know, and, and, you know, the other, like, traditional kind of German beers or whatever. But it, it, there definitely wasn't any kind of market for the other stuff that you see now and, and it, it it one of the things that i liked when i was over there was that like every city had their own brewery i mean there was like a big one like ike bomb or something like that that was everywhere but but there yes the brewery yeah right but there was always this local thing and and when you were over there you ordered beer by what type of beer that you liked and and in the states at that time it was like just big big manufacturers you know it was like budweiser core yeah horrible you know i mean you know like all, all the beer culture comes from europe but but that micro movement i have to say now that kind of really originated in america and it's now actually taking off in europe too which is kind of um interesting to see so do you see ipas over there and stuff like that too now yeah more and more you see stuff like this and all kinds of people's people experimenting with all kinds of stuff you know yeah. so so you find it all and it's kind of an interesting you know not everything is is equally great but um it's definitely something um that's that's taking off what do you uh what do you miss about about home whenever you go home what is the thing that that you always go for for me i i always um it's always food, you know, and, and in a place, when you think of a place, it's like, yeah, your friends there, the, the, the moments, but then there's always like, there's some certain food from that area that, that you always just like really kind of want. Oh Same yeah. With you great, or that's a great thing about traveling, you know, it's to, to experience the local cultures and the local cuisine, you know, and yeah, I mean, going to Italy where I go a lot, you know, to Livigno, there is like incredible typical, italian homemade cooking and pizzas and pasta of the best you know fresh olive oil and yeah and yeah that's definitely something to look forward to and you know i always order the local beer whenever i go somewhere i ask for the local one you know so it's not like right i always whenever i think about germany and it's funny because it's not a german food that i always think about but man those turkish donor stands that were like on every corner those things are great. <laughs> they are. They are. So um, back back to mountain biking. <clears throat> what kind of bike are you riding nowadays? Well, I have a few bikes. Uh, today I rode my GT4s, which is their new, you know, like their basically enduro bike, 150 bike. Like same bike Martin Mays races in the enduro uh, world EWS series. And... Um, so for you, what kind like so you're running probably that's like a 150. You said something. Yeah, it's like 155, I think, and, it, and like 160 in the front, and then I, it has 27.5 wheels, carbon frame, and um, it's kind of my all-round bike. And then I also have a GT Sensor, which is kind of the little brother of the Force, which mm -hmm. is the 130 in the rear and 140 front. 
S twenty nine er wheels. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit more XC ish, which trails around here in Laguna, a bit more all mountain, and then and then I ride my trials bike. Try to ride trials once a week. Still, you know, it's it's getting a bit older. Makes you feel or appreciate how fit I used to be in terms of the trials riding when we used to ride like six hours a day, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays, like hopping around on your back wheel just like for 30 seconds gets you out of breath, you know. Right. It's a good workout, and that's why I keep doing it. And then, you know, you do downhill runs or you do some shuttles or you go to a bike park or sometimes ride a road bike or sometimes ride the e-bike. So I, I completely mix it up. Do you think that there's a... a a trend that people are, are buying more bike than what they really need for what their local trails are. No, that was always the case. Um, so, so what do you, what do you think the, the, like, if you had one bike, like what, what kind of like suspension setup would you have on that? Probably like, like that GT four, like a one fifty ish yeah. bike, one sixty. I mean, honestly, sometimes I I'm joking with my friends, like, if I only had a hardtail to ride in our local hills, which are pretty steep and rough, I would rather not ride a bike. I say, <laughs> I mean, because like, and 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 we used to ride hardtails in these hills for twenty yeah. uh, hardtails for twenty years, and uh, yes, the trails might have had a bit more dirt on them back then, and now they're more rocky and worn out and eroded, but it's like definitely full suspension all the way, you know. Yeah, I've been riding my uh, my hardtail for the last like two weeks here because I I had to send my wheel back to get rebuilt by Envy and uh, it's definitely yes I can ride all the same trails and in some cases just as fast and in some cases maybe not but man I tell you what I definitely feel it at the end of the ride a lot more than I did on my my full suspension bike. Yeah, you, your buddy, you know. They, you know, they absorb a lot of um, shock, which translates into pain if you don't have it. <laughs> so um, you have a charity that you do. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, Wheels for Life is a nonprofit charity. We give uh, bicycles to people in need of transportation in developing countries. So it's basically school children, um, healthcare workers, or farmers are kind of our main uh, target audience. And often these people, like in, in Africa or in, in China or so, transportation is the biggest problem they have or don't have, you know, like the lack of mobility. And these kids literally walk like five or ten miles to school or healthcare workers literally walk to their patients who live like in remote villages, like 10, 20 miles away. And farmers who maybe have a crop of mangoes or corn, you know, if they don't have a bike, they can transport them to the markets and stuff. So, so that's what we've been doing. We've been giving bikes and we are very, we are very small charity. My wife, Carmen and I, we basically run it. We run it all volunteer. Nobody gets paid. We have hardly any overhead and we've given about uh, 12,000 bikes away in, in 32 different countries in the last 11 years. That's amazing, dude. So how are you how are you funding that? Well, we do fundraisers and we have people to donate to us, but we do a lot of small fundraisers once a year or once every two years. We try to do this gala where we kind of invite, you know, like where we where we raise a bigger try to raise a bigger amount. But um 
it's often guys who contact me and say, hey, I'm going to ride my bike around the world and I want to do it for a good cause and I'm going to try to raise $3,000 for you guys or, you know, kids kids do a lemonade sale and, and bike shops do movie screenings and there's all kinds of ways how to to raise awareness for our cause and for our charity. If you notice, if you follow the Enduro World Series, you notice Team GT, they're running our logos on their on their chest this year. They had a they had a logo space and they gave it to us, which is which is awesome, you know, and that raises awareness. And and a lot of my sponsors they do and help stuff like IXS just came out with a new Wheels for Life hat that we're gonna launch at, at Sea Order next week and selling them there and GT in the past had uh, some uh, with performance. They had a Wills for Life signature bike that would raise money, or um, SQ Lab would have a saddle, you know. And uh, so there's different ways, but it's basically, um, you know, like we depend on donations of individuals and, and so, so. How long have you been doing that? About eleven years, twelve so years. Yeah. What What was it that made you decide that that's something that you wanted to do? You know, after traveling all over the world for, for a long time and going to a lot of these remote places, I kind of start to realize how how bikes have a very different meaning to these people than to us. To us, bikes were more like a sports object than a toy. And to them, it was like the difference between rich and poor or getting an education or not, getting healthcare or not. And it was really existential. And I started to say... I did this this self-help seminar, Landmark Education, and one of the little uh, things was you have to do like a, a community project where you organize something and give something back to your community. And I said, you know what, I'm going to give 50 bikes to uh, one of the places I visited in the past. And at the time, I had no idea about charities. I didn't know what a 501c3 nonprofit charity meant or what it was. I didn't know how to get the bikes there or, or what, how to do it. I, I didn't know anything. And I started to kneel into it and look into it. And soon I realized this is not going to stop with those 50 bikes. And as you see, you know, like um, 12,000 bikes later, you know, we still, you know, we're doing it. And what, what country was that? The first ones we did in, um, in South Africa and in Ghana. What, what made you ch choose that place? Was there something that when you visited there that really stood out to you? Actually, I reached out to a guy who had connections in giving bikes away in those countries. And I piggybacked onto some of his projects at the time. And I learned a lot from those guys how to do it. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that can be done wrong or there's a lot of different ways one could go about. And the route we are doing is we, we buy the bikes locally. So for so about when, 100 to $150, I can buy a bike in, in most African countries. Mm -hmm. And if we buy it locally, it fuels the local economy. We don't have shipping ha hassles and costs and logistics and customs. And it's easier to find spare parts. So we have project leaders locally. They help us find the people who really need the bike. Because if you give away free stuff, you know, like you could do that here. You could go to your hometown where you live and go and say, who wants one of these bikes? And everybody goes, yes, give me one if it's free. But we want to make sure that really the people who need the bikes and benefit from them and appreciate them get them. So how do, you, how do you vet the people out to know who, who is not just raising their hand? 
Well, because we have local projects leaders, and those are either people who sometimes they work for a charity locally, or they work maybe for a church, or they work for another, you know, they just really engaged individuals. And we have a vetting process where they have to fill out an application, and there's a lot we can read between the lines. And part of, part of the thing is they have to give us a report afterwards. So we start fairly small. You know, we start with sometimes a project can be only 10 bikes or 20 bikes at the beginning. And they have to send us a report afterwards with photos and with, with bios of the people and receipts of buying the bikes. And again, you can read between the lines a lot. And then if, if a project is successful, sometimes we visit them personally and sometimes we even do a film, but, but we often then sponsor a second and a third phase. And there's some places, I mean, most of the bikes we've given away is probably Uganda. And there we've given, we had two, 300 projects we sponsored. In some of these projects, we have these project leaders and they almost like the Wheels for Life family of Uganda. And they, they take it very serious and they make sure that the right people get the bikes and they get us the reports. And that it's not like, you know, that's, that's why we want to lead with example of, that's why we don't pay salaries. You know, whenever I go to a project, I pay it out of my own pocket. It's not a new job for me. It's really something to give back. And the same for my wife. And we have a board of directors. Everybody's volunteer. And we cut out middlemen whenever we can. And the local project leaders usually do the job. How many people do you have uh, that are part of the charity? Well, it's really my wife and myself. We do the everyday work. We do my it wife. It seems like there's just a, a, a just a shit ton of freaking logistics to go through to make all that happen. Oh, it's so much work. People have no idea. I mean, like <laughs> yeah. we, we we try to give away about a thousand bikes a year, but we don't just give them away with one go. We we have right. like we have like fifty, a hundred projects, and each project we need to chase down the reports, the applications. We need to raise that money first. It's not like that some rich guy gives us whatever, 100 grand every year, 150 grand. It's like there's a lot of small donations. And then there's we have to send them receipts. And then you have to do the books. And then you have to do a website. And you're supposed to do social media. And and this is all what, what I do. Um, and my wife does a lot of the everyday day-to-day -day work on the site you know besides my real job besides being a professional writer dealing with my sponsors traveling the world doing all the media stuff so but it's a nice thing it's a wonderful thing we always said we do it as long as we can afford to do it you know i get money from my sponsor so i don't you know i can do this for free and um and yeah it's it's inspiring and we also want to give we want it, part of our mission is actually to, to have people have faith in charity and show people that if everybody gives a little bit back, we can all make a difference in the world. And because there was a time when people lost um, faith in those bigger charities, because these charities, the, the executives pay themselves huge salaries and they have fancy offices and business, you know, fly first class. And, and we do none of that stuff. Like if you give us a dollar, I can guarantee you 98 cents go straight towards buying bikes, you know, and the rest is administrative or a website or bank fees or whatever it is, you know. So you said your wife's a big part of that. I, I, so I, I would make the assumption that she's a, a pretty, pretty into the bike industry as well. Yeah, totally. We're a team, you know, she is very um, involved in my whole career from, from A to B. I mean, she, we does a, we, 
we do a lot of decisions together, planning on trips and stuff, but she's also a photographer. So often she's actually joining me on trips as a photographer. And then she does the whole wheels for life thing. So, um, you know, we work as a team, you know, she does all the books for my business here. And, um, how'd you, how'd you meet her? Um, I met her at a trial show yeah. in England like years ago. And yeah, that's how we met in Birmingham. And it was, I guess it was the bonus present of one of my sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> so um, where would you like to see the charity go? I mean, you've got, you, you've given 12,000 bikes over the last, you said 11 years. So, I mean, you're, you're doing more than a thousand bikes if you were to average it out a year. Obviously it probably didn't start out that way. So it's ramped up. I mean, where, 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 where's the, where do you, where do you see it going? Well, you know, like I said before, we do this on the site and we can only do so much. And we are pretty comfortable at this level where we are right now around this thousand bikes with the, with the infrastructure we have, you know, we could, if we could start hiring people and try to do, you know, five times more bikes, but would it be our overhead would be way higher it would you know and, and the truth is there's millions of people who could need benefit from a bike and luckily there's other charities out there who do that too you know we're not mm -hmm. alone but and like i said and i think hopefully we can inspire others to do their part by either supporting our cause or doing something similar and um at the moment, I'm pretty comfortable at the size we are. I, I couldn't take much more on with the, like I said, with the with the, with the infrastructure we we have. So you said earlier you're you're 53 years old. Mm -hmm. So you you also said that you're doing as part of your professional riding that you're doing adventure rides. What does that mean? Well. I, like I said, when I, when I stopped racing and I started doing more like these free ride videos and stuff, but I also started doing these adventure trips and that was back in the nineties when, when nowadays everybody uses the word adventure for every little bike ride they do or put a <laughs> shoot and on Instagram and fl fly up to the mountain and do a photo shoot and fly back to the hotel. But we literally used to, I started a Huntsway adventure team and that again was a very difficult transition. At first, my team managers were like, what? I was like, yeah, look, I don't want to leave GT. I just want to leave the racing team and I want to start doing these adventures and combine travel with culture, with history, with, with exploring places. I want to be the Indiana Jones of mountain biking. And I think we can appeal to way outside the bike industry or the media outside the bike media with these trips and going to travel and lifestyle magazines and on TV shows. And it took like three, four years for the bike industry, you know, to really grasp onto it and see. And I started going to places like Machu Picchu and the great pyramids and cross the Andes and, or go searching for headhunters in Borneo or, or go to, I look for an alien dwarf tribe in China. And we do, we did, we did these trips and we filmed them for TV and these things would, would play in TV, not just once, they would play for five years, you know, like every few months. And they eventually, you know, like later than the internet came about and the stuff was also broadcasted on the internet and it would find a home there. But um, we would do these adventure trips and, and they get published in the magazines to this day. And I mean, print was a lot bigger back in the days, but whenever I go one of these trips, I get like 10 page article in like, 25, 30 different magazines worldwide. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, imagine you win the world championship in cross country. You get maybe one page article, a one page picture if there's an article about the world championships, because there's all these other categories they have to cover. Right. We're doing an adventure trip. We have 10, 12, 14, 18 pages spread with photos and the sponsors love it. And we, we gave basically giving the sponsors a great return of their investment. And that's what it, at the end of the day, it comes down to if you're a professional guy in our field, if you can, you know, deliver some results. And traditionally, the only way people could see results is by being on top of the podium. But um, there is other ways and um, and there's room for more stuff. You know, there's only room for one guy on top of the podium. Right. You know, so. so when you go somewhere like Machu Picchu, like how do you coordinate allowing to ride bikes there like is that you know is it already just acceptable or it's just like you need to work with the the local government or something like that well this uh, machu picchu i literally had permission from the president of peru himself because at the time some people there's an old inca trail that goes for three days to machu picchu if you don't want to take the train and go straight there and we wanted to take the inca trail and long time ago, there was a few people who did it on mountain bikes, and then they closed it for bikes, though, the trail. And it was very technical. It wouldn't have been fun for the average biker. But we got back then, like in 96 or so, we got a special or 97 from Fujiyama. He was the president. He gave us permission. And I don't know, it was somebody helped us to get it. And But, you know, that's the point you're bringing up is quite interesting because that was I started doing these trips before the Internet. Right. And, I would buy rare books and I would read between the lines of a rare book, something about the headhunters in Borneo. I would read and see if I find out something about the trails there or the terrain and what it looks like. And because you really had to do the research all yourself. And I used to buy a lot of Lonely Planet uh, travel guides. They would often, you know, because I would often pick these tracks, these famous hiking tracks. And yeah, I mean, like nowadays, almost any trail you want to ride, you can just go to YouTube, type it in. Somebody's done a video. Oh, yeah, it's, right? so, it's so easy. So it's like back then, it's like not even, I mean, in some cases, like even just finding a trail map would there be was like, no trail map. There was like literally, Sometimes you find a 200-year-old map about something, some old pirate trail, and then <laughs> that's the only thing you had, and you kind of have this rough map, and you, okay, it goes on the backside of the mountain. Let's see if we find it. And it was, and then often then we would, you know, in those days, they already had local tour operators, not so much for biking, more like for hiking or whatever. And we would hire some of those guys. And and often it turned out that I knew more about their local stuff from the research I've done than they did, you oh, know? Wow. And, but that, that, it was different. And now it's so easy. Like you really Google it in there and you see everything. You see the terrain, you see the weather, you see where to book a hotel. I mean, so when you did Mach- Machu Picchu, you, you guys rode up that trail or you rode down it? Well, it's it's up and down, but it goes over a pass that's 4,200 meters. And Machu Picchu itself is like 2,500 meters. Yeah, it's so, up there. It's it's way up there. Yeah, and it was a tough, it was a cool trail. But yeah, we went up and down for three days. And uh, it was a technical trail. And we we had permission to go in there. I rode in the ruins and all that. You know, it was awesome. And um which one of your adventure trips is the one like whenever you think back on your career to date that you're like, man, that was just amazing. Well, there was a few and sometimes it's hard to 
to pick out a whole trip or even a single day in a trip. But I mean, I have to say a few years ago when I was 50, I, I, I climbed Mount Kenya and Kilimanjaro back to back on bikes, the two highest mountains in Africa. And Danny mm -hmm. McCaskill was with me and Gerhard Zerner, a German rider. And that was quite an achievement to get up these mountains because I done, I was the first person to do Mount Kenya 12 years prior to that. And at mm -hmm. the time, it took us six days. It was one of the hardest trips I've ever done. And I did not know what made me think it would get any any easier when you're over 50. And you do, <laughs> you do Mount Kenya as a warm-up for Kilimanjaro. And we had to do it in four days because we were, like, pressed for time. So, and then, like, making it to the summit of both of those mountains um, was a great, um, that was a great um, accomplishment, I think. So then riding back down, was it, was it just as much getting down work getting down or it was like, all right, now we're going to like, just do this awesome downhill run. Well, it's a lot easier to go down and it's still right. hard. <laughs> it still takes a long time and you still don't want to get hurt. You're still very far from the hospital. And we often have film crews with us and those guys are super athletes too. That they, they, most of the times they have, they are on bikes, they awesome bike riders. They carry their gear and they ride bikes. And whenever we stop and, and me and the other riders can take a little break, they have to get their cameras out and film us eating or resting. And and so, but but doing something like this, you know, like you could bomb down Mount Kilimanjaro in probably like a few hours if you just go top to bottom. But when you film it, you do it in two days and it takes probably like eight, nine hours, you know, instead of, you know, just bombing down it you know that's the that's the oh, sacrifice yeah. of filming and photographing all that stuff yeah i know whenever i first started my youtube channel it it, it changed the way that i watch videos because like let's just say a lot of guys on youtube like you'll see a, a lot of them are doing it by themselves right so it's like you'll see them come down some trail and ride by some camera that means that they rode down to that set up the camera went back up the hill rode past it then turned around got back up to the camera then decided whether or not oh wait i want another angle of that too so we'll put it there on the other side of the trail go back up the trail and then come back down so definitely um whenever i watch those like even those like tv shows now where it's like you know naked and afraid or freaking living in the the jungle by myself you know or alone or whatever it is it's like there's somebody there freaking humping around a big freaking pack full of camera gear that's right next to him oh, it's, so, it's so exploited and so often often it's faked i mean there's some guys out there who do real adventures but often it's just like it's humbug and that's why that's why i'm kind of transitioning away from these traditional adventures and i i really love the urban adventures and it's kind of with the times and we can actually mix it up with regular mics and e-bikes and it's something new but you know like 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 a few years ago when Rat Boy and those guys started doing their videos and they started doing them really kind of raw and just having fun and filming it. And that's exactly how we started out back in the days. That's how we did it. It's like they didn't invent that or so. They right. were just like, you know what? We're sick and tired of making these like $100,000 productions for a little YouTube clip. We just kind of film ourselves and show how we have fun and how we try and fail. And this is all part of it, you know? Yeah, and totally. And that's how it that's how we used to do it back in the days when we filmed out you know we just filmed and whatever we got out of it we got out of it 
And like, if we didn't make it in three tries, we were like, screw it, let's go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a hard time when I hear like some of these guys, they do like 300 tries to pull off a certain trick or a move, you know, like that's like, I respect that to the uppermost, but I, I wouldn't have the patience. I was like, screw it. <laughs> moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so why did you pick Southern California as to where you want to live? I didn't pick it. It picked me. I, I mean, like that's what Kevin Norton, that guy who invited me, he lived right here and he dropped me off and he introduced me to the Laguna Rats, which is one of the original mountain bike clubs in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. And those guys made me a real mountain biker, you know, above and beyond being a trials rider. And mm -hmm. um, to this day, I ride with this group. They have a they have a weekly Wednesday night ride, and I don't miss it when I'm in town and those rides are super hard and tough and yeah so that's right that i landed in socal and that's where i stayed and i mean there's a lot of people here and all that but the climate and the lifestyle overall is pretty damn good you know compared to the 80 countries i've been to mm -hmm. you know all of these places have great things to offer and, and many places have better things to offer and better culture but as a as a place to live and have as my headquarters or my hub and and mm -hmm. especially in the position i'm in where i get to go to all these other places you know you know i couldn't be here stuck 365 days a year but with, with my travel schedule it's a it's an awesome combination so if you had a couple of places that you you, you knew you were going to ride in the next year that would just like make you like like man I, i'd be stoked to to get to those couple of places in a year what are those places you well, mentioned yeah, that place in Italy earlier. Well, I'm definitely going to go back there. We just we designed this Tutti Frutti epic there, which we built all these incredible flow trails. So I looped them all together into a one day ride. You always take the lift again and you do like you do like 11,000 feet of vertical in one day and oh, like wow. 10 different trails. And it's like it's the Tutti Frutti epic. It's such a it's such a bucket list ride, you know, just like the whole enchilada. So and then and then the other thing I'm working on is is this right here hong kong is my next tested trip i'm working on and back to the lonely planet but the internet helps a lot but i'm going to do one of my urban adventures there this year and i'm planning a possible heli biking trip in new zealand uh, also later on this year so when when you're saying that the urban urban adventures so what what kind of what what makes that like what are you what are you doing well you go to these huge urban cities but you it's a multi-day trip. So you combine the incredible nature that's around, like a city like Los Angeles has incredible mountains left and right, right out and with world-class trails and there's waterfalls that are hundred feet big waterfalls and stuff you had. And a lot of people have no idea. And, and we show these trails right on the edge of the city, but then on the second or third day, we drop into the city and have this complete contrast from the nature and harmony into this chaos and this urban jungle with all its traffic and cultures and people and and you have the famous landmarks in a city like la but then you have so many remote neighborhoods that people even if they lived in la for 20 years they had no idea they existed and and then you find little trails in the middle of the city and all of a sudden you come out at a crystal math lab or or a, <laughs> or a homeless shelter and then you go over the next little gully and you next to Britney Spears house or so, you know, and it's, it's such a incredible way to uh, explore these cities. And the second and, trip, 
what in the in Napoli on the Amalfi Coast in in Naples in Italy, and that was equally stunning. So, how do you find out about the trails? I mean, do you have like you've done a bunch of research before you so get there, research. or you get there and try to like meet somebody local? And so much research, um, and it and you you do work with locals. But even in LA here, I never had to plan more for a trip than the one I did to traverse LA to link it all together. And I had a friend who helped me a lot, my friend Tony from Fix uh, Fix Manufacturing. He had done a little fun ride for a bunch of friends before and and i kind of you know like he had a lot of local knowledge and i mean after the you know like the first day was in the san, san gabriel mountains mount wilson and then the second and third day were in the city the fourth day was on the backbone trail in the santa monica mountains and the fifth day we did a traverse of catalina island and yeah, there was there's a lot of um, research, and but it's fun to loop it all together and to explore it. And and locals helped me. I had all these locals in Italy. I had a different group of locals every day of the five days. They they showed me their local hood, or they got me permits, or they they showed me some secret trails, or some you know from riding in underground tunnel systems that were like three thousand years old, to riding on the edge of the Vesuvio volcano. To um, to so, you so where do where did those videos get like from like where do they get distributed from do they go well, online uh, or they go primarily I made it a TV uh, show and it was uh, distributed on TVs in in eighty different countries uh, we had like three thousand airings in in different like in eighty different countries on TV and on on different OTT platforms and stuff like this and eventually it ended up also on YouTube it's on my YouTube channel now and the second trip is being distributed Napoli is being distributed on TV right now and I'm literally I'm waiting for one clearance but um, I'm literally hope to release it if not next week uh, definitely the week after it's going to be released on my YouTube channel which is Hans, Hans Ray or Hans No Way Ray. Oh, right on. So where did you get that nickname? No way, Hans, no way, Ray. Well, when I first came to America, they started showing me these challenges. You know, they never seen a trials rider of my of my caliber. And they would show me these, oh, try to jump down this, ride up this, do this, you know. And and they would always say, no way, that's impossible. You know, whenever somebody said, no way, that's impossible, it was an incentive for me to at least give it a go and try it. And pretty soon they started calling me No Way Ray. And that kind of name sticked, you know, from, from the early few first few weeks there. Is there any um, pro riders that you watch today that that you um, pull inspiration from? Oh, a lot of them. Yeah, a lot. There's tons of people in the future, in the present and past that you know that you can learn from everybody, from anybody. You can learn stuff. Not even pro riders. Sometimes it's amateurs you learn stuff from, and even if it's um, how to, you know, like it can be the most simple thing or it can be a big motivation. But yeah, all these guys motivate me. I might not be motivated to do a double backflip, but a guy who does a double backflip might motivate me to push my own limits more again too. Or, you know, sometimes you get too comfortable in your routine or whatever. So there's, there's different things. Sometimes it's just the attitude of a person. It's not necessarily what they just do on a bike. That's just a small part of the equation. It's mm -hmm. all the other thing, how they handle their life, their career, their attitude. Their, are they giving back? Are they, are they inspiring people? Are they having that ripple effect? You know, And that's what 
everybody who is a pro, anybody who is a pro and makes some money from the sport, I think should should try to give back and pay forward and to you know. Is so. there anybody through your career that really like is stands out to you as like, man, that guy really kind of changed things for me? There's a there was a lot of people, and it's 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 difficult to to. You know, and, and it's not just bike riders. Sometimes it could be, like I said, these extreme skiers who made me, like Glenn Blake and Scott Schmidt, who made me want to start become an extreme mountain biker or be the a, a Boris Becker, you know, with his attitude and the way he's more like off the court than on the court, maybe back in the days when he was big, or Jody Taris, or, you know, I get just like, inspired by the young generation now there was a guy named there's a guy named rick richway he was a big mountaineer and he's um they've done an incredible project with uh, on the advocacy side protecting lands and with the whole patagonia crew they they really revolutionized the whole not only the rock climbing sport but the whole industry and the the ripple effects they had by protecting lands of literally like millions and millions of acres um, to create national parks all over the world. And guys like him had a big impact of me of, hey, doing, you know, there's a lot more than just being the best on a bike. You know, you can you can like excel on in other ways too and give back. And this, you know, and it's I think it's part of your duty and it's part of with your age comes responsibility. And you see that with the younger guys too, a lot of them, you know, give back and especially the, the smart ones and the ones who stick around, they're not just looking after them, their own interests. They making sure they, they looking after the whole sport and industry. So some people that are maybe young, young right now that are maybe starting their career, what, what kind of advice would you give them on what they should do to, to be able to have a, a career as full as yours? You got to become an influencer on, on you on Instagram. <laughs> be really cool and take photos of yourself all day long and then call yourself a hero and a legend <laughs> and, um, so apparently they need sarcasm you're rolling in the huh? sorry <laughs> so apparently they need some sarcasm that's what you're that's yeah. what your first thing yeah. is no i mean it's you know follow follow your instincts i mean there's a lot of people just want to get a bloody career right now and yes it's it's a dream of a lot of people and there's more people now having jobs as a pro rider or photo model or an influencer or a racer or whatever you want to call it but the important thing is do what you really want to do if you really want to post pictures of you all day long and then I don't think that's really fulfilling and you're not really having a big ripple effect on the world even though you have some some companies who might give you money for it but but there's a there's a fine line you know I, I appreciate the social media a lot it it ha it opens a lot of doors but I also think it's in so many ways overrated and especially with all the the fake stuff that's going on you know I call it social doping now you know what what a road racer would have done back in the Lance Armstrong days when he doped you know like he would steal price money from other guys so do some of these social media these so-called influencers who have never really achieved much other than they have a lot of followers and it turns out that most of them are bought or like were fakes or from Russia mm -hmm. and that's really cheating and the guys like that steal money from guys like me who who don't do that stuff you know yeah. so 
and but that's not really why I'm you know I don't want to sound bitter but it's just like it's sometimes a bit overrated I think I think if guys who really do inspire inspirational stuff and they have a social thing I think it's really interesting to follow them and to to see what they do but these guys who just um, post photos of themselves and have never really achieved anything it's I don't know it's it's a bit shallow yeah yeah no I I, I can understand where you're coming from for sure um what would you say to somebody that's like you know in their mid 40s just starting to ride bikes well it's never too late really especially nowadays and yeah maybe if you if you're in your 60s already you might want to start on an e-bike but <laughs> <laughs> but you don't have to but um um how do you how do you motivate yourself? Have fun. Set set your goal, the bar not too high. Don't worry that there's guys who do twenty foot drops and and you know like just like you know like set the bar so you have fun and your friends and find some riding partners that you can go with that are kind of on the same level than you. Not just and then you can push each other and have fun and and really do it for the right reasons you know be out and yeah enjoy it really you know make make it enjoyable for you if 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 the rides you know are not enjoyable then you know change the the style or where you ride or the yeah. you know maybe do less uphill or whatever you need I, to do I always tell people man I ride bikes so I can relieve stress not so I can make it and there's too many people nowadays that get caught up in like having some super fast time maybe they're trying to do some kind of strava thing or maybe they're trying to you know do some huge jump or some something that's super crazy technical that may be out of their skill set and it's like you know yeah ride to get better but at, at the end of the day for me it's like ride bike to have fun you know to like get your fucking head straight to to like be able to not everybody can be a pro rider you know and so when you're out there i feel like you should be going out there for for what it is is to like get away from all that other shit pack it up and leave it at the house while you go out and get on the get some single track therapy you know yeah no you you're right i mean it's and there's nothing wrong that's the great thing again all these different subcultures and yeah what's what's a nightmare for one person might be fun for another you know like um you, you don't need to jump down a 50-foot cliff to have fun you know it might be <laughs> fun if you can do it and if you tile them a call or so but if you you know if you're not your chances are you end up in the bloody hospital so do something that suits your skills and your you know your reality right definitely um what is uh what what if I mean, obviously, what's the? I'm sorry, got a little tongue tied there. What's the what's the bike that um you like the most from the GT line right now? Um, always, <laughs> it's amazing, you know. It, I, I I experienced so many times throughout my career. Like we get a new model, and it goes like, oh my god, this is the best bike ever. And bikes keep improving, you know. It's really amazing technology. Bikes get lighter, work better. There's new stuff coming out. So, um, like I said earlier, the GT Force is probably my go-to bike uh, right now. Um, and then that's the, that's the Enduro one, the 150. You said. Well, that is the Enduro one. The Force yeah, yeah. is the Enduro one. We have the Sanction still, but that's kind of the bike. That's kind of the Force is taking over from that now. And um, are you riding a GT when you're also doing your trials, or is that a different? Yeah. Bike? 
Yeah. Yeah. They, we used to have trial spikes and we have a few, I have a few frames left over from the last time we did a production run or, or a prototype run, which is a while ago. We haven't really done any new trial spikes for sale or so mm -hmm. in the last five or seven years, but I still have some frames left over. Um, Do they make something for you like, like specialty wise or? No, I'm, I'm, I'm writing the pre-product. I mean, they would if I really asked to and if I run out of frames one day. But, um, you know, if I would still be competing and ride like and go to three or four bikes a year or, or whatever, two bikes a year, then but some of the bikes I have now, I can have the trials bikes. I can ride them for three, four years. You know, they'd be fine, you know, if you ride them once a week only, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, so do you, here, I'm going to switch up a little bit. Do you think, uh, Good brakes or good tires, or which one's more important? Well, for trials or for mountain biking? Eh, whichever way you want to answer it. Um, good tires, then you don't need good brakes if they <laughs> make turns still at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> what um, where where would um, <clears throat> so you're you're saying good tires? Who, who do you have a tire sponsor that you use? Yeah, I've been working with uh, Victor Victoria Tires for the last few years. They do a traditional Italian company, but they do really great um, mountain bike tires, and they have really cutting-edge technology. They're putting materials in these things. They have four-pound compounds. You know, they they work. Um, you know, they're really pushing it. And I worked with several tire companies over the years, and it's an interesting subject. You know, tires because it's um, depends a bit on the terrain and all that, but then there's a lot more to a tire than just the, the knob design, which often people look at the look at the tire and they think they they know it, you know. But it's like that's just like one sixth of the of what really makes a good tire. Yeah, I've never ridden their their mountain bike tires. I actually have some of their tires on my my single speed road bike, but I don't have. I've never tried any of their mountain bike tires. What what is uh? What, what's what's the one that you like as far as like an all-mountain kind of enduro type of tire? The Martello. The Martello is the go-to tire, and they have this graphene material in there, which is like a nano material. It, it's like a, I call it the doping for tires. It's it, <laughs> it makes them more, it makes them roll faster, wear less, and more grippy, puncture resistant, more puncture resistant. And it's this, this, they, they, they just came out with the G2, which is the next generation of that stuff. And it's so tacky and nice. And, um, and a lot of their tires use that, that G2 technology, but, um, um, the Martello tire definitely has it. And I like the knob configuration and the casing and the size it comes in. So yeah, I was mounting a few of those this morning. I was like mounting tires this morning. Do you use, uh, inserts in your tires? Um, on some bikes, I do. Yeah, they have this uh, the airliner insert Victoria, which I which I just uh, installed it on my e-bike this morning again, and I use it on some of my other bikes too. But I have so many bikes, I sometimes switch it over. Sometimes you don't mm -hmm. you don't have it in all bikes, so it's not a, something I do religiously. But um, it definitely makes a difference, and you can run a lot less air pressure. I mean, I can run like as little as ten pounds if I want to on those on those. Oh wow. How, how much do you weigh? I don't know how big of a guy you are. Uh, with my gear, I'm probably 200 pounds, but then, but that's like I'm talking about a big tire, and I'm talking about for low speed stuff. But I would more more likely I run 15 pounds when I have the insert in there. 
So, oh, wow. So even when you're doing kind of your, like your enduro runs, you're running about 15 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Actually, it's amazing. The footprint is so much bigger when you climb. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, you know, like it's like, yeah, it's really absorbed stuff. So do you like that, that 27 five plus kind of tire or the 29 or better? I think 27, a little smaller wheels is good. Yeah. I, I Honestly, I think the future is going to be 29 in the front and 27 in the rear. Oh, yeah? But what makes you think that? Because motorcycles are that way. Motorcycles have bigger front tires. And I've, I've, I've ridden it over many for many years. Like, I've tested it or tried it out or, or run these combinations. And there's something to it. Um, that and, and there's more and more people doing it. E-bikes are doing it more and more now and um even racers like martin mace our top enduro guy is is racing now his 27.5 uh, uh, fours with a 29er front wheel so you think when they're doing that 29er up front that it'll um maybe be a little less suspension on the fork yeah probably you have to come yeah it's a give and take and that's probably what it it might mm-hmm. it might take a little bit out of your um suspension I tell you what, I can't wait to see the derailleur go go away. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. People have been working on gearbox bikes forever, and it's it's a funny thing. I'm sometimes joking with people and say, if we never had a front derailleur ever in the history of our sport, and somebody would invent one right now, everybody would probably switch to a front derailleur. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. y- you know, you never really know because I mean, the, the one buys are great, but where i live again it's super steep and i'm often like missing a gear or you know now with the new uh 12 by from shimano there will be definitely the gear ratio is there now but before that in a few years ago when the gear ratio wasn't that big you know you were either too slow or too you know you were missing a gear when you were spinning on the road or you were missing a gear when you're on a steep hill so yeah i think for me like with the one by like i i end up trying to make my front chain ring bigger so that i have that that ability to grind on the way down and some people are like oh well you you don't you don't need that but for me when i'm going downhill i I like to have a really big chain ring so that i don't have to do a lot of pedaling to get to the speed that i want to get to where where with if i if i'm riding here and it's like at elevation and stuff like that then I, I need a smaller chain ring, but then on the downhill section, it just, it, it irritates me, but it doesn't irritate me enough to go put a derailleur on the front of my bike, because I'll tell you what, in all the years of wrenching on my bikes, that front derailleur was like the bane of my existence. So I really don't miss working on that fucking thing. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, you came in the right time to the sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've definitely definitely seen some changes a, over the years, and I mean, it, it's funny. I remember, you know, when BioPace was out in the '90s. I think one of my first mountain bikes had that on it, and it's like nowadays, it's like that's what they call oval. And I'm like, it's funny how things come back around, you know? Yeah, no, it's things come and go, so that's all good. So, what's next for you? What What are you gonna? Um... Well, I'm going to Sea Otter next week. Are you going to Sea Otter? Yeah, I'll see you there then. Oh, that's awesome. You're gonna be there with GT? Yeah, but you know, I'll be there, yeah. Also with GT. We I think we have an we have an autograph session with the whole team on Saturday afternoon at one, I think. But um I'll be there doing stuff with IXS with 
with Victoria Tires, we have a Q&A questions like on Friday, I think morning at 11 or so. You know, we talk about tires. We, it's going to be live online. We 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 do we're selling the the Wheels for Life head with IXS. I'm going to do a Shimano e-bike ride on some of the days. I'm, you know, and I'm going to just like saying hello to everybody, checking it out, seeing what's new, saying hi, and be there. You do a little little friendly competition. Is Danny Maxwell going to be there? You can just show him like what's up on the trials bike. Oh yeah, I show him that all the time. <laughs> No, I'm glad I can watch them now. I I've done these trial shows for so many years. It's it's good sometimes to be able to stand on the sidelines now and have the have the other guys do the work. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a it's a it's a it's a a community that not a lot of people really knew existed, and I think that that still is probably one that doesn't have a whole lot of, of like publicity as far as the mountain bike industry goes. I think Danny Maxkill really did did a lot for that community at least here in this with this younger generation to kind of bring bring notice to it but i know it's guys like you or jeff lanowski was on on the chat earlier like he's been around forever and going out there and doing all the those trial shows at all the, the shops and stuff like that that's just um i think like what you said earlier it's really something that people can relate to when they can when they can see you know somebody jump off the top of a a roof to a, a you know down to the ground or something like that or the things that blow me away is like when they jump off of something like that and then they land on like a fucking railing i'm like i couldn't even do that with my feet let alone on a bike i know the sky's the limit it's definitely cool and and it's definitely it's been great to witness it firsthand ringside and it from you know and um and I think it's it, it's gonna continue like this. You know, our sport will evolve. People will do things, and it doesn't always have to go extreme. Or you know, there's other ways how a sport can expand or grow or yeah. or evolve. And um, and I'm sure so, it's it's gonna be fun all the way. So the people people that are are watching here, um, the way that this show came about is kind of interesting. And I wanted to just go ahead and tell that story because I thought it was entertaining. So I was down in Sedona and um, I had a few few of my buddies with me. And the last night that we were there, they were they were itching to go out and, and freaking tie one on. And I knew that there was a twelve hour ride between drive between Sedona and Northern California where we lived the next morning. So I was like, yeah, you guys go ahead and do that. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and stay here and, and crash because I know one of us needs to be not hung over tomorrow. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and be that guy. So my friends went out that night and they came rolling back in the door at like 2.30 in the morning, just freaking amped up like there was no tomorrow. And they're like, we met Hans Ray. And I'm like, oh, wow. And they're like, no, you don't understand. And so please tell me what you were thinking when these dumb drunk fucks came over to you and like, Hey, we got a buddy's got a podcast. You got to talk to him. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it's all good. You know, you, ne you never know who, you know, you meet a lot of people in this industry and I've, I've met a lot of guys when they had their first week in the job. And now they, 30 years later, they're running the biggest bike companies in the world or they, they like some of the biggest journalists we've ever had. And I remember I was the first guy ever doing a photo shoot with that photographer or an interview with him. And, you know, it's all good. It's all part of our sport. And what's nice about our sport is also 
you know, like the so-called celebrities are very accessible. It's not like other sports, you know, where you, you know, like even, even compared to road biking, it's really hard to get close to a top road bike pro if you go ever to a road race. Yeah. But mountain bikers, they there, they go out in the bar at nine, they have a beer with you. And, and that's kind of a neat thing about the sport. It makes us less special in a way. People are not so starstruck, you know, like, like, and it, you know, like, you know, but it's like we just na- we just natural, and and I think that's a nice thing about our sport. You know that people are in the, inaccessible, and you give everybody a chance once. I mean, if they spill their beer two or three times on you in that bar, then you might walk right. away and say, "Yeah, tell your buddy to do his own podcast." I think right, exactly. So you know, I think life is all about networking. You know, and and um, it's definitely you can you can be very successful through life by who you know and the way that happens though is that you're genuine to people that you do meet and that you don't you don't you know try to take advantage of people and and you try to have show your your true colors as much as you can and i think that is one of the things that i truly do enjoy about the mountain bike industry is that for the most part mountain bikers are pretty laid back they're you know conscious of their environment around them they're out there to have a good time but um not not wanting to be all like high and mighty and stuck up 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 on themselves so i really appreciate you hans for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today dude it was it was such a great time talking with you i can't tell you how many um how many messages i've seen pop up in the comments about like Hans Ray, oh my God, this is epic! So, like, I I really appreciate you taking the time to to sit down and talk talk to a, a guy like me, man. Yeah, man, thanks for having me, and um, yeah, time to eat some dinner, I guess, and I'll see you at the Sea Order next week, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely the 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 that sounds like a good plan to me. So, I just want to tell all you guys watching, anybody that threw up a super chat while we we're talking, I really appreciate that. I I I, I really truly do. It means a lot to um, keep the channel going. I um, Like I've told you guys before, I, I've taken all the ads out of the videos because I just want you guys to support the channel the best way that you can. So if you um, don't wanna join my Patreon, don't do that, but hit the thumbs up button. That, that'll make me happy. If you just watch the show and uh, you wanna see more of it, hit the subscribe button. If you're listening to it on a podcast, hit the subscribe button there too. Like I said earlier, if you could write a review, that'd be great. If you really enjoyed this, you're watching it on YouTube, leave a comment, man. A lot of people um, ha- haven't been leaving as many comments and I really like interacting with everybody. It, it, it's it's what makes YouTube fun for me. So outside of that, um, I want you guys to remember one thing and one thing only, it only takes a bike to be a biker. So get out and be one.